1: I massively increased the spigot. You know, I just pumped dollars into my economy, and therefore, isn't the consequence of that would be that the price of a marginal dollar unit would fall? But the weird thing is that since you've been doing this, each marginal dollar that you produce is becoming more valuable. So your heart's not in it. I kind of reason that perhaps the central bank just were asking it to be really, really irresponsible, and these guys were not made to be irresponsible. Put me in charge, or like Joe Rogan—you know, a caricature. It's a game of psychology. Yeah, you know, if you can get in people's minds and make them think differently, you change
2: history. Welcome back to the Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro Bitcoin and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Tuesday, August 11th, and today we have an interview that I am so excited to share with you. Yesterday, I got to chat with hedge fund manager turned St. Bart's Villa manager Hugh Hendry about just a huge variety of topics in business, finance, philosophy, and beyond. There are some pretty surprising parts of that conversation, so I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. First, however, let's do the brief. First up on the brief, MicroStrategy's 250 million Bitcoin buy. So what happened? MicroStrategy is a Nasdaq-listed business intelligence platform that was founded in 1989 and is worth more than $1.2 billion currently. In July, the company told shareholders that they would be buying back $250 million in stock and investing the same amount in gold and Bitcoin over the next 12 months. The goal was for these alternative investments, as they called them, to protect a dollar-heavy balance sheet against inflation. The executive team behind MacroStrategy pointed out that there were so many factors pointing towards the possibility of inflation that they wanted to have a specific hedge. This is what they said about Bitcoin. We find the global acceptance, brand recognition, ecosystem vitality, network dominance, architectural resilience, technical utility, and community ethos of Bitcoin to be persuasive evidence of its superiority as an asset class for those seeking a long-term store of value. So, why does this matter? On the one hand, this is just one company. On the other, it does kind of set an at scale template for people or companies who wish to switch their savings behavior, quote unquote, from cash to Bitcoin. And that's a powerful potential idea. In a world where the job of fiat currency is not to preserve value, but in fact to be a tool of monetary policy, which is a discussion that you'll see I have with Hugh later on. Maybe part of the point of something like Bitcoin is to replace that capacity of cash to store value in a safe but very liquid way. Next up on The Brief today, a Russian vaccine is coming to market. President Putin has said that Russia has registered the world's first COVID-19 vaccine, and in doing so, they used language hearkening back to the space race and the glorious launch of Sputnik in 1957. The problem, and of course there are problems, is that this vaccine has had accelerated clinical evaluations and shortened test trial times. A local association of multinational pharma companies have called it dangerous and said, this is a political decision by Putin so he can claim that Russia was the first in the race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. I can't understand why Russia needs to build this Potemkin village. Why does this matter? Well, the vaccine trade is one of the most important in the world right now, right alongside the Fed trade and the what the hell happens with the US and China trade. But just as it probably seems to you listening to this right now that this is a rushed and political decision, first and foremost, so it seems to the market as well. The market is not exploding on excitement about this vaccine trial. They're basically kind of dismissing this as Putin doing Putin things and trying to kind of have a propaganda win. Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group had this savage line. He tweeted Russia's latest Sputnik moment, declaring victory by clearing an inadequately tested vaccine for public use, helps explain why the Soviet Union collapsed. Ouch. Last up on the brief today, the Hong Kong protests are taking a new financial form. Yesterday, we discussed the arrest of Apple Daily publisher Jimmy Lai, who, in addition to being one of the most outspoken pro-democracy advocates in Hong Kong, is also one of the area's biggest media tycoons. In the wake of the arrest, which targeted not only Lai, but his two sons and other executives from his media company Next Digital, the stock of Next Digital has surged as retail investors have piled in. The Next Digital stock has seen an 1,100% surge in two days, hitting a seven-year high. This has been organized by online forums, and overall, the market value of Next Digital has increased more than $335 million. Importantly, this is almost all retail, and there's really no other cause other than this coordinated effort happening, as I said, on online forums. In addition to piling into the stock, People have been increasing their buying behavior around Apple Daily Papers, which have increased printing to 550,000 copies today from 70,000 two weeks ago. Now, of course, this could all just be symbolic. I mean, ultimately, what does it accomplish to drive up the price of the stock, other than perhaps to give Lai more resources to fight? But it wasn't exactly hurting on that front anyways. Instead, it seems like it's about the point of the symbolism, which has to do with the core value proposition of Hong Kong, which is as its role as a neutral financial center. In many ways, the biggest thing these protests threaten is that idea, but of course, the whole point is that what's really threatening that status is China's encroachment in general. These protesters are just a natural reaction to it. In that way, I think that this protest which involves the stock market and which suggests that all of a sudden, the stock market itself in Hong Kong is in fact subject to political forces could be something that is very worrisome for many there. With that, let's shift our focus to our main conversation with Hugh Hendry. Hugh Hendry ran a hedge fund called Eclectica Asset Management from the early 2000s to 2017, and became known for first, achieving a almost 32% positive return in 2008 as everything else was crashing, and second, of course, for his outspokenness. If you go check out his Wikipedia, there are two quotes on the top. One was this, he said, To my mind, the three most important principles when it comes to investing are Albert Camus' principles of ethics. God is dead, life is absurd, and there are no rules. Another quote was that when asked what defined a great fund manager, he said, an ability to establish a contentious premise outside the existing belief system and have it go on and be adopted by the rest of the financial community. Those of you who have heard me talk about narratives as a battle of self-fulfilling prophecy might recognize something in that idea. After closing down his fund in 2017, Henry shifted his focus to building out properties in St. Bart, which he has called his, quote, Volatility at the end of the world trade. A few months ago, though, he reemerged on the macro scene in a big way. Now, I don't have too many chances to get philosophical around finance. So when I do, I take it. And I think what you'll see through this interview is that Hugh does not think like a lot of the people out there. We talk about everything from why he closed his fund down to what he sees as the problems with the conventional wisdom now to. A very different take on where income inequality is really coming from right now. So I'm interested to see what you all think of this interview. I'm sure it will give you much to both shake your head in agreement with as well as to scream at the speakers in disagreement. So that's kind of what I'm excited for and I hope you enjoy it. As with all our long podcasts, this is edited only very briefly, but let's waste no more time and dive right in. All right, we are back with Hugh Hendry. Hugh, thanks so much for joining the show today. I'm really excited to chat with you.
1: Uh, well, n- n- nice to be on. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sitting in the therapist's chair, and I, <laughs> I'm ready to be diagnosed
2: oh my god well i don 't know if we'll diagnose, but we'll certainly try to pull some things out of you right um, so I, I think where I wanted to start there, there's so much to dig into, but I you know as I was mentioning to you before, one of the things that's been really fascinating about your uh, kind of whirlwind reemergence onto the scene of the uh, the macro uh, brain set or I don't know whatever you want to call the, the place where we all discuss these things in, in in public is that I find that you know a, a lot of folks who are in this industry are uh, they're, they're job, the way that they get paid is they're managing someone else's money. So they try to have their theses fully formed before they get public, right? And by the time they get to you, they're talking their book, whether, whatever their book is, whether it's their investment or it's their, uh, just their, their kind of their particular perspective. Whereas what I've noticed is you kind of really trying to absorb a huge amount of information, spit it back out and make sense of something. And I think it's coming off to a lot of folks as incredibly authentic because so many of us are also trying to absorb a lot of information and make sense of a world that feels like it's changing really quickly. But I think that uh, you know, for, for our listeners or, or, or our viewers, let's give the, the kind of the brief version of your, your history and, and how you got here from you know, uh, a hedge fund manager into sort of this very vocal figure that had a uh, kind of public shift in, in your perspective to, uh, to a very different volatility at the end of the world trade, as you put it, to kind of back to where you are now.
1: Okay. The um, well, uh, um, let's see if I can do this short, so we can get to the kind of juicy things. But um, I, I guess I came from like in the American to- context, like a kind of housing project. Um, you know, really, really tough. Um, and my family didn't belong because we were perceived to be kind of on the make in terms of wanting, wanting to get out, wanting to get very, very far away from that place. And and I think I want to say I suffered some form of non-physical trauma during that period, which kind of really kind of shaped and formed the kind of anthropologistic person I became that I have always been somewhat detached. I've never really retained. I've, I've had many deep, wonderful friends, but it's, they've been episodes and chapters of a life and we've continued to evolve. Um, I I found that there was a, it, it would seem like there was a, an incredible fortuitous set of circumstances, which kind of was able to, to pluck me from that very difficult and challenging background. Albeit one could say that, that the harder you work, the kind of more fortuitous you become, but you know, but definitely it felt like the, 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 I, I don't really believe in God. God is there to quote Alba camels, <laughs> but it felt like definitely there was someone pulling strings. And so, yeah, I've, um, I I found myself with a prestigious, um, very proper company working in Edinburgh, very sort of academic and rigorous. Then I found myself in London with one of the original uh, European uh, long short hedge funds. And at all times, I was a troublemaker. I, I hear these damn voices in my head. You know, it's like uh, feeling the vibration on the on the rail track, and you know there's a huge <laughs> locomotive coming. And in the early part of my career, I didn't really have the legitimacy for, for people to stand aside. And so the train would approach closer and closer and I'd become more and more agitated. And kind of that's where the troublemaker part became, I came, because I'd i be shouting, I'd be trying to you know protect people. Um, I had a very fortuitous meeting with uh, um, an astonishing mind um, in London, a chap called Chris Benodi, And... And then he taught me some, like, he taught me to misbehave. And it's that kind of misbehavior which forms curiosity, which allows you to kind of try and decode whatever is out there uh, on on the markets. And then from there, um, it's almost like the pattern recognition became almost like the way a musician would look at um, a sheet of music, like a musical score. Um, And so, again, I worked on that. But anyway, I, I got my own hedge fund. And here I am, the boy from the housing project, now has a um, a glorious lifestyle in uh, a billionaire <coughs> island, um, it's called Saint Barts in the French Caribbean.
2: And so uh, you uh, packed up that hedge fund a few years ago and, and started to focus on this really uh, unique place. I actually want to come back to St. Bart's and talk about it a little bit because I think it's the, the way that you look at it is fascinating. But what was the genesis of, well, I guess, one, removing yourself from, from this world for a minute that you had occupied for, for a while at that point? And then two, how, how did you find your way back?
1: Well, um, I don't, I, I've always, I'm passionate. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about anything, trees or whatever, but I'm, 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 I am I'm vibrate. I drive my wife crazy, but I, I, I vibrate. I kind of need pills to calm me down. It's like, just get agitated, I vibrate. Um, but um, the business after 2000, at the end of 2012, I, I wrote a famous letter to my clients. Um, so, and I was kind of, a kind of iconic reference from what was my favorite show, Entourage. So, <laughs> Entourage, this, you know, kind of like the supposedly the, the kind of life of Marky, Mark, Marky B or whatever, um, but um, in Hollywood. But there's a great line from a kind of a director who had, had enjoyed great, great success, but many, many years ago. And the lack of recent success, of course, always eats away at your legitimacy. And so there's a great line. He was famous for kind of um, saying to anyone that would listen, what if I was to tell you this movie will cost us $40 million to make will win three Oscars and we're going to cross $600 million. Is that something you would be interested in? Of you know, course. Um, and so I, I, my conjecture was what if I was to tell you I was turning bullish on equities? Is that something that you would be interested in? And the uh, and I knew what the response would be. The response was a, a very emphatic no. And some newspapers and magazines of the time carried um, articles about the, the last bear turning bullish. Um, and the thing about that is today, <laughs> today, people still argue and dispute whether I was right. <laughs> I'm turning bullish in two, at the end of 2012 on the S&P, and people still dispute whether I was right. Um, and so that conflict um, and, and that having found myself boxed in in terms of this perma bear and, and then even rejecting it and not being allowed to reject it slowly but surely made my life uh, joyless. and And I found myself losing clients and then the clients finally kind of just, I had not enough money to sustain the business, which was the end of 17. We had this, Enormous hurricane. The force of the hurricane Irma in the Caribbean. It passed directly I, I mean, this when I'm I'm talking to you under like a 25 kilometer. It's a speck of dust in the ocean. And yet this hurricane, which was the size of the France. France is a big country, you know, 65, yeah. 70 million people. The, the eye of the damn thing passed right over this island devastating, um, and in the same week, I lost a large client and and the business came to an end and so I spent really if you will I entered confinement um, when everyone was forced into confinement in in March of this year with this plastic virus um, i I reemerged from my self imposed confinement
2: so uh, this is actually super interesting and, and actually a little bit different of where I thought I was going to go right away but you know i 've heard you talk before in similar ways about even having uh, having kind of the the financial press take something that you had said uh, about Bitcoin right and then turn it into a a narrative position right that was that you were anchored to, that you were tethered to. How much do you think we maybe don't appreciate the way that the rise of social media and kind of the rapid transmission mechanism has forced? people who are in finance into these slots, right? Like you're forced to be in one tribe or another represented by easy kind of Twitter soundbite-esque uh, positions that don't allow people to have kind of the full, uh, a full reflection and changing opinions because that would kind of lose them audience that they had gained.
1: Yeah, well, with with respect to financial managers, uh, people managing other people's money um, and those, those other people being, if you will, institutional clients, there is so much kind of uh, risk checking. Um, so everyone needs a defined uh, nature of who you are, what you represent. And um, people, I, I want to say, they, they really enjoyed interviewing me, except at the end because they had no notes. They were, I, I could, I'm a talker, you know, um, and the great problem was the kids who have to write these things up to and get them approved by the investment policy board. They were like, <laughs> I don't know. So, um, and I like, I, I used to joke that I used to dare people, you know, give your money to the guy who hears voices in his head, the paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, not not a not a, a viable marketing str- uh, campaign, I would add. But you no, know, the, the, the need the simplicity of a definition is is something which can and probably does haunt all professions. Um, And I very much kind of rejected, I stood steadfast against it. Um, But you you get chiseled, chiseled, chiseled down, you you make it, you know, but if you're not prepared to define who you are, then you are actually passing risk on to the person who has to make a decision and a judgment. So it's kind of, Mm. it's kind of past the hot potato. I was like, Hey, listen, you know, you know my argument was always if you wanted to reduce car deaths, put a huge dagger from the steering wheel you 'd be driving, and you 'd be looking at this enormous you know. and if you made a mistake, you would be impaled okay I promise you that would that would overnight you would reduce probably by eighty ninety percent uh, fatalities from road accidents because people would drive down down carefully um, and so people kind of. I was the reverse of that. I was like, hey, you take the, yeah, I was like putting, I was putting that, I wasn't the reverse. That's what I was in that equation. I was putting the the, uh, the dagger very firmly in the steering wheel and saying, I dare you, invest, you know? Like, I dare you to do the homework. I dare you to take risk, you know? Um, I like daring people, uh, but people don't like being dared, especially when it's not, when it's other people's money.
2: Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, I mean, let's take it up to this year, you know, so there's a, there's a personal cadence for you coming back in, but there's also, you know, it sounded like, uh, you were starting to try to uh, figure things out that that you, that were just not making sense to you, or 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 at least you, the the kind of conventional wisdom that was flying around was insufficient. I mean, is that the case? You know, I mean, you you've started to produce a, a lot of content, both this sort of conversational content, but also written content. But you know, as you started to to hear voices again, right, uh, in the context of this market, what what were they talking about? What was the the impetus specifically that you wanted? to kind of have a stake in the conversation again
1: mm. well the i so the i had an awakening um i i i think last christmas i i was we always get a huge influx of very very successful people onto the island of st Bars. and i was beginning to think like i was hitting myself in in introductions of what my story was and there's just more and more young folk in in finance and you know, most of them hadn't heard of me and I was just thinking I was becoming irrelevant and my, my great ego would not allow that. Um, and, and so the hardest thing was to to challenge the inertia which had grown, grown up around me in the last two years and how I could kind of come back. I had absolutely no desire to manage other people's money. Um, and so I kind of hit upon the idea of, of doing a book um, of my kind of cranky, Uh, eclectic letters over the course of the last 15, 20 years. Um, But then I thought to myself that the better thing to do would be like a kind of this kind of podcast series with a very good transcript, which kind of would end up being the book in slow motion. And so I began analyzing my thought process back in 2002, 18 years ago. And the thing is like, who cares? Like who who can, like, can can you remember what the, the, the top, um, song was in the charts like no one, no one knows no one cares but the idea the idea really was that i'm dealing with uncertainty and i'm dealing with uncertainty kind of in an eccentric cavalier interesting manner and you either reading the transcript or watching or listening to the podcast you kind of know what happens next you know and i'm saying and so i press the red button you're like don't press don't press the red button anyways i, I embarked on um on that exercise, and I began to recognize that all of the voices, which is to say, all of the kind of chart setups, and then and the chart setups versus the narrative that I that, that people were sharing, like we had twenty. I suddenly had twenty twenty vision that twenty twenty just seemed to be the same setup set up as two thousand and two, and that back then I had conceived of a narrative which would have a dramatic third and final chapter the true explosive move in kind of precious metals would take place and so i suddenly thought wow you know this was just meant again i said to you earlier on in my career it felt like there's a fortuitous set of circumstances which was kind of leading and promoting me and and taking care of me now it took i have to say it, it took eight years of me being very very miserable before there was before that benevolent hand inter, intervened in my in my career, my lifestyle. But the benevolent hand, I want to say, reappeared in sort of March, April of this year. And you hear me talk about, again I like to I like to have fun with words. Um, and you know people are very cruel and you know they might they always think I'm they're always thinking I'm a moron and I'm always very quick to correct them that I'm an oxymoron. You Know, I'm a, I'm a for instance, I'm a contrarian trend follower, and, and I, I say that because it's very apropos the, the current situation. So, I made money being a contrarian trend follower. Um, what does that mean? First of all, I never feared the consequences of being wrong, okay. Secondly, I was looking for legitimacy. So anyone, anyone can have a narrative, but you're looking for a narrative which has the legitimacy of a supporting trend. And, and I find that it's actually the majority who, who act in a contrarian manner. So to put that in today's context, yes, people kind of gain and enjoying the, the gold and the silver move and of course, Bitcoin and, and whatever else. Um, but for all of them, there's many people who would say that we, we saw this move in, in 2009, 2010, and, and then just it disappeared. Um, and then there's all the people who would, would discuss why it's happening and would be very, very critical of the monetary authorities and who'll tell you that bonds are terrible and that the equity market's over expensive. Um, but all they're doing is, you know, the trend in all of these assets is very, very positive, and they're imposing um, an intellectual narrative, and an imagined reality, which is very much at odds with the reality of the trend. So my, what I want, I guess, the best way of summation is my imagined realities were always in keeping with the reality of the trend. And that kind of, that kept me out of trouble. But remarkably, it kept me contentious. And so I'm finding myself contentious again um, and reaching out uh, with Twitch, Twitter. Twitter I, hey, who knew? It, it seems to be a, a shitty business, but as a platform, and you, you can just go, po, you know, and like just take someone out. It's just amazing fun. And and so, if someone writes BS and they append uh, my my Twitter handle to it, more likely than not, I am going to visit you and I'm going to correct the errors in your commentary. So, I
2: how much of the 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 trend problems that you see are just about the wrong time scale, right trying to zoom in too far and construct a narrative from that uh without kind of moving out with sufficient distance
1: yeah um, the that's certainly one of the skill sets more is more is better yeah the the number of times when people send you a chart and it's three months or three yeah three months or god forbid three weeks um you know that that's like seeing a portrait of some fantastic battle scene and you know you can't kind of work out where you are you've just been shown three weeks um i i um i love lots of data and and there are particular setups and the thing that got me excited was um, i love the ebb and flow of nature as it comes through um the, the, the kind of REM processing of noise of intelligent and otherwise people, um, and so I, I like this notion of a, a bull market, and then of course a bull market is just the expectation of something which is yet to happen, and and in some instances it doesn't happen, and therefore you have these profound bear market crashes, um, and so this then the brutality of prices falling eighty or ninety percent, and when that happens, typically there is no future. Um, but then you see, I love I love seeing redemption. I love seeing a kind of ten years of the share price no longer making lows, or it doesn't have to be a share; it can be a, it can be gold, it can be a currency, um, and then it creating a very very narrow um, base, if you will, and then out of the blue, it makes a ten year high, which is to say, it's still eighty five; it's still seventy five percent below its all time high, but it's actually just. Quadrupled in price in the last six months, and that's when my voices get very, very agitated. You can find it's not guaranteed, of course, but um, I'm always fascinated by the process of redemption, and that actually the future that was that people thought was going to happen ten years ago might actually be happening now, and no one cares about it. Those were always my my favorite setups. So my fascination for gold back in. 2002 was that it had that profound bear market, and if you put it, and I like relative price charts, you know, relative bear market, so a devastating bear market versus uh, the S&P of the magnitude of ninety percent, and then no new lows, and in absolute terms, it does nothing. But of course, just the the sheer uh, devastation of the the. The bear market that began in late 1999 meant the relative price of gold started to kind of register something, and by the end of 2002, you can start. You know, there was a there was a lot of um, cont- contention in my head from these shapes and patterns, and then my engagement with a you know a smart uh, group of young kids who would then question me. So that's how that's how my kind of mind begins to start a process of, of of discovery and then i have always had like really smart young kids much smarter than me who go out and and challenge my thesis Um, and that's the synthesis of that work is kind of of, is what we've achieved over the years
2: what's going on guys i'm excited to share that one of this month's breakdown sponsors is crypto.com what is the redemption story that's interesting now? Or what are the redemption stories that are interesting now? The futures that people imagine that didn't come to pass, or perhaps the future that people are imagining now that doesn't seem likely to come to pass.
1: Well, the remarkable aspect of today is, it's kind of, what's what's to stop it? What's to stop, you know. Like, as I say, I like and I wrote at the end of 2012, which is you know, seven long years ago. Um, why can't we have a repeat of the last seven years? You know, and I think the answer I don't think there's anything economic, financial, um, in terms of the tenets of, um, of the laws of economics and finance, I don't think there's anything that that that. Would interfere, or that would stop the next seven years being very similar to the last seven years. I think the most likely source, and of course it's conjecture, is really whether um, society will permit it. Um, And you know, there are there are red flags in that. You know, uh, the UK, the UK, and Britain, of course, I'm referring to to the Brexit, the UK's uh, judgment to to leave um, the continent. Um, is a kind of red flag that's kind of people getting angry because the most logical thing would be to kind of stick with the status quo, that the kind of transaction cost of breaking that thing just kind of doesn't – it's not obvious that the the upside is many times greater than the kind of transition cost. We will see. future will judge that. Um, but people decided to kind of I – don't, I don't care. You know what? You tell me about cost and you speak to me rationally. I'm angry. I don't care. This is going to happen. And it, it came to pass. There's clearly anger. Um, there's a degree of anger which has fueled Trump um, into his ascendancy. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, Trump is many things and it's, it's for others to kind of, uh, to, to impose morality. But um, Trump represents a curious, I, I I seem to be a great lover of all things America, I mean, uh, and maybe I overdo it, but um, a, a liberal democracy pursuing curiosity and being playful is going to make mistakes. But the fact that it's it's reaching out to Trump is is a reflection that the totality of American society recognizes that today doesn't feel correct, that today needs... You said redemption, that today needs leadership, and it it needs perhaps a different path and and very much a different narrative. Now, it may be that liberal democracy in America got it wrong with Trump, um, and it may get it wrong wrong with Trump two, Trump three, but the fact that it's trying, I think, is ultimately gonna prove its salvation. It will ultimately find redemption via that curiosity. And I don't really see that curiosity elsewhere.
2: So yeah, I, you had tweeted at one point, I think in reply to someone else, for as long as we avoid the inevitable popular revolt, the status quo will deliver exponentially. And I think that's kind of what, what you're referring to. But the interesting thing is that we have, we have this strange moment now where I think that you have narratives for both what went wrong and what we should do to fix it. That's really what the US political debate is about, right? In, I think the, you know, the, the 2016 Bernie versus Trump fight that so many people wanted, even though that's not ultimately what they got. It was two different stories about what went wrong. Uh, and two different ideas about how to change it and and what might go right. And now I think it's a a little bit different this time around, but there's certainly a a kind of left-leaning and a right-leaning narrative battle on, you know, what feels wrong the the way that you put it, which I think is really right. Interestingly, however, both sides seem to be getting comfortable with somewhat similar economic policies, at least as it relates to individual citizens, right? Which is the, you know, the, the debate, for example, right now between the Republican and the Democrats is not, should there be stimulus or not, which it might've been 10, 20 years ago. It's, does the package look closer to 1 trillion or 3 trillion for this go around, right? Which is a remarkable shift. And so I guess, that you know, bringing the, the financial side back into this is, has actually the, the, the ground upon which we stand in some ways shifted irrevocably. We just don't see it yet.
1: Well, it, it it shifted,
2: and I think it has shifted
1: irrevocably in the world. Um, and it's contentious to say, but in the, in the world of central bank policymaking, which kind of ultimately, you know, can can shape. I mean, they they actually they, by making them independent, they they gave them the superpower that they could kind of do whatever they want. And, and of course, I guess with the caveat that if they truly screw it up, they'll get reined in, and they'll. Be punished by losing their independence. Um, I want to say that um, again in terms of what is the check on the exponential nature of, I was going to call it prosperity, on the on the, the the asset price speculation kind of ascendancy. What is the break? Because the break used to be ideology. It used to be the ideology of the people who run banks. And that ideology kind of—it it was still there, and evident. It stays still there. But you know, the the, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates um, brought down the housing market, um, and, and and created a, an an all And um, the Federal Reserve beginning to raise rates—I think from when did they start raising rates? Like preempt a little, just tiny. Didn't they do something in two thousand and fourteen or seventeen? I don't remember in my mind. Who cares? Um, <laughs> The, the, the desire to be seen to be um, doing things right—you know, they, they, they can't really come out just now and endorse that, that the natural rate of interest is either is either zero or negative. I mean, some of the, the the local Fed presidents are kind of writing to that that end. They're kind of trapped just now by the notion that they can't go like really negative with with interest rates. And there's a huge consensus that negative interest rates do not work. But we've only tried like negative, we've only tried negative interest rates. And they've been defined by basis points and not percentage points. So I'm very curious about, I I could see us moving from basis points to percentage points. Um, But I kind of want to say that at the end of the 1920s, it was a hard money ideology, the kind of Andrew Mellon and purging the system um, of its rottenness and its complacency. Sounds noble. It is noble. and, And there are kind of strict kind of economic doctrines that could push you that way. But you are sacrificing ordinary people, and that. And when you had Bernanke, many many de- decades later, when he was uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve in the noughties, and when he stood up, I think on the was it the 90th birthday of Milton Friedman, and he and he apologized on behalf of the Fed for that decision, which created at least ten years of of, of depression, and I know all the, the dramatic kind of awful emotional things that that did on families. That I want to say has has gone. Um, and that's not really being embraced. That the, the, the people the most vociferous critics of central banks today are ideologues and they want they want to raise interest rates. They, they, tell, you that, that they tell you that the Fed has manipulated everything. That is just that is an imagined. Reality now I can't tell you if it's a true imagine reality. But my suspicion is that is not a, a true uh, reality. The, the price reflects this, this extraordinary world. like where should 10-year rates trade? Where is American GDP going to where, where, where are they going to print for the year? It's going to be what, somewhere between minus seven and minus 12 or at least minus 12 it's going to be an unprecedentedly grim number. And people tell you that the Fed's manipulated market rates. I'm like, should they trade at three percent, four percent, five percent? What's wrong with fifty basis points? So you have zealots, and they want to impose something which is not market based. And if they impose, thankfully, the central bank's not listening, because if they imposed it, it would it would incur it would just it would just destroy families and, and life's, I don't care. I mean, I don't I don't care about ideology. Let's not destroy farmers.
2: So this is really interesting. And this is another thing that I wanted to ask you about because there was a period after that, after 2008, Right. Which is, uh, you know, you had spent time watching this almost, it, it feels like it, you were watching it unfold in, in slow motion in some ways where you had that anger, you had that frustration. In fact, you, uh, speaking of being pigeonholed for it, right. For a time you were, that's why it was so surprising to people when you kind of shifted your perspective in 2012. How did you, uh, how did you start to, uh, what shifted your perspective, I guess, and in particular, you know one of the big questions right now is exactly to your point, the question about income inequality and uh, and kind of the the growth in asset prices versus uh, versus wages and people's ability to participate i mean how, how does that fit into I know it's something that you care deeply about. how does that fit into the, your understanding of the role of central banks
1: yeah um, so I mean so thanks for bringing that up because you know um, I I had to deliver a mea culpa. I had to say, forgive me that ever since, you know, so I, I, I made a nice profit. I made 50% in the month of October, 2008. And so for the year, I think the figure was about 32% positive. You know, and and I expected that we would get this. I I was Andrew Mellon. Hey, let's purge the rottenness, all these complacent people who got away. Um, and and so I think three years later, I my mere culpa was, you know, I'm there to manage your money, not to be your moral compass. And so what directly to your question, what changed? What changed was still the the discipline. Remember, I always sought legitimacy from the market itself, and I found that I was breaking my golden rule. I was dis- I was going against the prevailing trend, which was absurd. Now, you're allowed to do that for brief little periods. It's very, like, we have red lights flashing whenever I do that. And it's like, you've got a half-life of hours, you know, <laughs> but this is unsustainable, this is unsustainable. Um, I give I myself no more than three years. Three years is, is Jesus, It's a
2: lifetime
1: in, the, in, in terms of the world of managing a leveraged macro portfolio. And so for three years, I had very much extinguished all of the goodwill that i'd achieved in two thousand and eight and don 't get me wrong i didn't lose money I just didn 't make money when it was so damn easy to make money and I was really really annoyed at myself and so the, the kind of three year time window and the fact that hey someone takes you out i I had someone that takes me out um, and and therefore I, I had to I had to search for another way you 've seen that you 've seen that since two thousand and fifteen a lot of micro people telling you that the Chinese currency was going to collapse versus the dollar. Um, it may eventually, but I could see, I, back then and today, I don't see any reason that, that would support that. Um, that was, there are people who've been arguing that case for five years. They're still launching products today. Those products are very, very leveraged. They're very simple option products. And they say to people, just give me, just give me 1% of your wealth. You're guaranteed to, to, to destroy 1% of your wealth. So uh, narratives need to be disciplined by the passage of time. And that, pa- that time, sorry, that, that message, that kind of, um, uh, what I want to say, grumpy kind of moralistic kind of uh, uh, curmudgeon was timed out at the end of 2012.
2: So that's, that's part one of the question, I guess. But then part two has to do with the the, the income inequality, are, do you think that the folks who think that income inequality is, has been exacerbated by uh, asset price growth, uh, are, are they off? Is that, are that missing the mark?
1: I, th- I, th- I think there is greater fear about upsetting sabers and like these you know these like really, really low rates that you get, and of course, people retiring and and, and searching for an, an annuity and finding that the income that the annuity provides is is not enough for life, I think there 's kind of more policymaker angst about that subject rather than the disparity uh, in incomes um, and that that bothers me um, the a lot of the disparity. I think, is emerging from, um, there seems to be a flaw in the capitalist system today, which is that too many important actors, and this is kind of part of the Trump kind of trade policy, but you know, let's call it principally Germany, representing Europe um, and China, um, ha- have been using the US as the consumer of last resort, which is to say that um, those countries um, are just saving too much, um, and the consequences of that, the, the, that first came to came to our consciousness because they had so much savings that they were and they were so determined to put it into America that we had the kind of cheats and liar um, loans to ordinary house like ordinary households were being enticed to take on loans, you know. Uh, with teaser rates which would trap them and then they would they would turn viciously and then you'd go through all the the the, the trauma of losing houses, etc. was coming from this mercantilist trade policy that we see in Europe and China. That has to change. You know, that has to change. They um, they have to pay people more money in, in China. And uh, they've got to have a, a stronger currency. In China, they've got to kind of um, let some of these state-owned enterprises disappear because, like ordinary folk, are being suppressed. That the, the heel is crushing them to keep afloat these monolithic, stupid companies. Um, Even the, you know, the U.S. is making mistakes as well. I mean, the again, I, I in my head, I'm kind of playing around. I've got a trade in my head about. Um, um, I, I don't think we've seen the last about this story about negative interest rates. And I think if I wish to be provocative and look to the future, I think we will see negative interest globally. globally, um, and I think they will have handles of one, two, three percentage points negative, and that will be punishment to that generation of savers. I think we were talking in the intro about how I can bookend, I can bookend a fifty-year period from the nineteen seventies to, to, to today, where we kind of. We pivoted from chaos to order, and the imposition of order into our um, economy uh, was a, an immense boon to the creditor um, part of the economy. and And it, we're at the end of that thing; is going to change, and we've got to work out how it it becomes very, it, how the system works for the debtor. The debtors, the debtors are the people with ideas. The, the the you know the the Steve Jobs things about the. The square pegs and round holes were kind of scared of them. They kind of smell, they look a bit kind of fruity. Um, but they're the people that could change the world and they need your help and they need your money. Um, and the, the problem with the exchange the exchange of ideas for money or money for ideas was that the, the creditors were being overpaid, over-rewarded for that decision. That That is slowly changing and I think it will accelerate. And I think, again, the notion of redemption may lie it may lie in in that in that route, but that's I mean that's that's me sitting here, kinda of just with conjecture for the moment.
2: Well, I mean, all of us are sitting here with conjecture. It's just we all kind of play a different uh, play a different role in how, how much we're willing to stand by that conjecture. But this is, I mean, this is part of why I wanted to to have you on the show is that I know that a lot of the folks who will be listening to this have a different take on where this yeah. income inequality came from. But what what interests me is when people have a similar diagnosis of problems or a similar recognition of problems and different diagnosis of both cause and potential solution because all of a sudden, if you're debating that, you're in such better territory than just screaming at each other about what's, you know, what, what's, what's kind of wrong. And I think we missed that. So mm-hmm. I, I just want to expand on this just for, for a moment. It sounds like, and this kind of got, I think, also to the, to the heart of your conversation with, uh, with Luke Grauman on, uh, on Real Vision, how much the real culprit here is the structural imbalance between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And the kind of the, the, the how much got pinned on basically the, the backs of the American worker, the average American family in structuring the, the system that it became. And when you talk about savings, you're not just talking about kind of the average family who, who wants to save some money for you know, a vacation or a, you know, a rainy day fund. You're talking about kind of globally the, the savings imbalance between the U.S. and everyone else. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct.
1: There's so much there, so you're correct. Let me see if I can take these back in order. When people do disagree, like what I was saying is we'd have many people shouting at the, their iPhone or, or what have you. And those people offer an alternative solution, which is that interest rates are too low, they should go up. <laughs> you're going to get a huge amount of savings from that because people are going to lose their jobs and they're going to be forced to save because they've got no money coming in so if you're trying to solve income disparity uh, raising interest rates is a catastrophic idea in my in my low opinion Um, i go on in my tweets about the benevolence of a a global hegemon called the united states i I dare the naysayers to to rerun the last 100 years without the role of the u.s Um, obviously we've had global wars et etc but i think it's never happened in history that you had a nation that a sovereign nation that was willing to forgo or to take on the hardship um, of the displacement of people losing of communities losing their their job you know there there was a huge displacement there's a huge displacement that happens when you bring the other half of the world on stream online they they kind of conceivably are as deserving of it of a proper lifestyle as, as as all of us but there are consequences as we bring them online that they, they they enjoy comparative advantages to do things kind of not necessarily smarter but more productively than than you could do perhaps in the US and the US i think stands alone in having the the foresight to recognize it would be kind of better to take that pain today in the expectation of sharing that prosperity and having very rich neighbors and in the future that you're very much the pie is much, much bigger than the alternative path of denying that. Now, where we run into trouble is that that happened. You know, the seventies and you know, Martin Scorsese movies, the deer hunter and stuff just was showing you the raw edge of the displacement of steel workers and, and what have you. Um, and this is kind of payback period, you know, because the U.S. is kind of, has the ambition, sorry, the, the Chinese had the ambition to be the size, if not the, the, the greater size of the American economy, but I, I still feel that they're kind of backsliding on the promise. It's like, guys, we took the hit. You know, families lost jobs, they lost homes, they lost education, they had to move. We took the hit, and we took it to make you richer And so now you should be investing because you're rich and you should be doing stuff. Like your people should be a lot richer and they should be buying our stuff. And the Chinese, but the Chinese are behaving as if they've still got a country of peasants and they need more and more, like the US to to impose more and more hardship on us ordinary folk. And it's like, guys, we're we're done with that. You wake up and and change your model, right? You You know, you have got an amazing infrastructure right done right but you've got lots of shitty companies get rid of them, right let the currency rise and let the people get richer so that's a that's a debate that's going on there the other debate which is let me criticize the us and other western nations is there seems to be that grotesque order of ideology which seems to deny us a world class infrastructure it seems that you can raise money for you don't even have to you don't even have to tell people what the project is. You, you call it—it's a secret. But I'm a kind of—I'm a money maker, and I need a billion dollars. Done. But you stand up and you say, like the U.S. has the shadiest infrastructure in the world, and yet we're the kind of the best nation on, on earth. These things don't kind of—they don't go together. Give me, don't, obviously, don't give me a billion dollars. Give me—we're you know, talking trillions these days. You know, give me, give me three trillion. Give me <laughs> five trillion. Yeah. And, and yet, people deny it. That, that's not, not, not going to happen. Why? Why? I don't understand. There seems to be a deep, deep ideology that is so suspicious. We've, we've got to, like, like the 50s. Like, I don't care. Like, rebuild the damn roads. Like, get fast, fast. You, you've got Tesla there and his, his, um, his tunnel thing. Let's get these things moving. Like, you know, let's get internet, like, really fast everywhere. Let's spend money. And yet, people won't do that. That, that drives me crazy.
2: Yeah. Well, I think what's so fascinating about this and what you're coming on, and you know, I think that a lot of this is hinted at maybe in the the Dawn of Chaos, which you wrote. But I think is you could go even further with is that be I wonder if actually by framing this big secular shift that we're living through strictly in the context of financial flows, rather than bringing in the geopolitical, rather than marrying those two sides, we're actually missing something for either of them. You know, so I've had Peter Zeon, who wrote Disunited Nations, on the show. Show before it's a great book about the kind of thirty-year American withdrawal from the system. But the interesting thing is that what you what you're, what you add to his perspective and analysis is uh, is this idea that there is some natural evolution of what is supposed to happen next based on what the U.S. thought it was buying with its kind of bringing everyone into this world order. And if that isn't happening, that's a geopolitical issue as well, not just a financial issue that's going to have consequences. And we might be looking at mostly the trees rather than the forest, right? Individual trade war with Trump. The fact that China is now, you know, 73% of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. It's the highest ever. It's popular on both sides. To, to These might be larger structural issues about a need to rebalance. And I think to your point, there is an at-home piece of this, which I think the, the, the virus has exposed, right? Even the conversation that we're having now right the the seven hundred and sixty five million dollar loan debacle to kodak really you know I, I think that that's the that's the leading indicator of a lot of things that are going to happen as we try to reshore you know quote unquote or whatever term you want to use but it feels like we're very much at the beginning of uh, of a new sort of Marshall Planny era for for back home and in some ways I wonder how much the question is to what extent we view that that uh, strictly in terms of these kind of one-off programs, like, you know, uh, another extension of sim- stimulus support or debates about MMT and UBI versus a, a, a structural shift in how we think about the need to actually rebuild kind of a, a, of America in a, in a different context? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thought more Thought more than a question, right? Of course. But. Yeah, indeed. No,
1: I mean, the... There's there's just so much there's so much in that, um, but the you know the one of the points from the the, the dawn of chaos was challenge. I guess challenging is not the right word. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It's a fact, but it kind of it, it ignores that it is actually a, that there are other phenomena which kind of have to you know there's a kind of chain reaction and another phenomenon has to take place first. Um, and that other phenomenon is, is in this kind of soft, intangible world of um, uh, the psychology of you and I. And, you know, I, I, what I try to do is I try to, you know, the, the German economy suffered this catastrophic, at the time, catastrophic uh, hyperinflation. These events are remarkably rare in, in kind of in grown-up, civilized, developed economies. And, and, and it happened. You know, Germany was kind of like playing the role of China to the UK being being the US it you know the uh, the UK had uh, had the industrial Revolution probably over the course of the 50 60 70 years the Germans did it in ten years as you know as, as the, the baton' passed on um, but with the um, the and so they, they were destroyed by this hyperinflation, but the hyperinflation really was a a function of, of anger. The, the, the Allies, having having won the First World War, insisted on, basically gold was their uh, foreign exchange reserves that you hold to protect the integrity of the nation, to, to make it trustworthy to, to foreign creditors. And the Allies demanded the transfer of all of that, that gold bounty. and one by one it just made a divided nation very very angry and they turned in on themselves and they started like shooting politicians and this the shooting thing happened in in japan they were would you believe they were killing the Bank Central of Japan? Makers, yeah. Central, yeah. And, and you, wonder, you wonder why the Bank of Japan is very, very nervous <laughs> in doing anything. They're like looking behind themselves all the time. So it's, it's easy to, to see inflation as a monetary phenomenon. And at the end, it, it, it gets printed and it moves. And you know, you could carry a trillion dollars on your mobile phone you know, digitally. You know? So you know the next transmission mechanism could really just, the, the ground is parched and it could really go the hard thing is getting it to the point where people are so angry, but but again, the U.S. and it, and the divi- so there are divisions. Everyone breaking the divisions just seems to have accelerated in terms of the the, the two tribes just now in, in the U.S. The even the virus seems to expose two tribes, and um, and there's something remarkable going on with the little comment, which is that. Um, volatility you know this kind of the expectation of the, the daily ups and downs and the swings in in, in fluctuations of, of risk asset prices um, has remained elevated vis-a-vis the record of the last seven or eight years so it's kind of there's a there's a there is definitely a voice in my head saying watch that because that's really strange especially given this dramatic recovery in asset prices for volatility to remain as elevated as it is, the market's kind of yet to process, and what is, of course, is volatility is being anchored around the uh, the election month of uh, November. Um, and so, people, you know, the, the big the big fear is is really more that if, if Trump le- if, if Trump loses, that's that's the huge volatility then. because the question is how, how he deals with it. Um, and and how his tribe deals with it. And I think his tribe is perhaps more uh, what is the term noisy uh, than than liberal. You know, they they kind of liberal. Liberals are just they you know they will write opinion pieces to the Washington Post, etc. But they'll kind of you know drink coffee and get on with it. Whereas it's the other the other guys that, that's the concern. So there's you know we ha- Germany was a divided nation after the First World War. Um, the rest of the world. Kinda of was very very mean and and took it down a peg, humbled it and humbled it and kept humbling it, and then society turned on itself. And so we just have to watch this tribal thing, and the manifestation of that around the elections this year. I'm sure it'll be fine, but you know, it's no risk factor.
2: So uh, I've kept you for a while, I I could keep you here for like three hours, but I want to respect your time. And so maybe let's do this by by way of wrapping up. Um, Instead of trying to sort of explain in full, the thesis that you uh, have in the dawn of chaos about what what could help us out of this, right, and and what we need. Uh, Let's preview it. Right. Let's preview what the, the, the sort of you have this contrarian a little bit perspective on what it would actually take to get the, the kind of engine up and running in a way that would make sense. That's certainly not a return to the gold standard or, or something like that. So uh, maybe maybe let's preview that with a with a promise that to the, to the listeners that I'll try to have you back on soon and we can dive kind of deeper into uh, into some of the, the financial stuff from from where we were today.
1: Okay, so we'll, we'll thank you very much, everyone, for for your patience and lasting this long. These things are, um, you know, the the challenge is to is to to find uh, brevity um, and uh, and actually hit the points you wish to make. Um, I think my parting shot would be that um, the system, um, if fully operated, the monetary system if fully operated, um, could be the source of um, a lot of solutions, but of course, o- o- also a lot of um um p- potential trapfalls in terms of it, you know we we can find a solution, but we have to kind of make sure that that solution involves the many and not the few okay um I want to say that um there's been an ideology and a conservatism in the way that central banks operate it's almost we impose that upon them that it would make sense that we would impose that upon them um, I want to say that the central banks have been doing this thing called quantitative easing. They, and, and they become a little bit brazen. Like, uh, you had uh, Jeremy J. Powell on um, uh, uh, American TV, and he's, they never say this, but he's saying, yeah, we're printing money, and oh, we'll print a lot more money. I mean, that's not Fed speak, typically. But there does seem to be that the heart's not truly in it, and this QE process, the, the the expansion of inert bank reserves—it it fooled a lot of people at the beginning, but you know it's not fooling that many people now. Japan started this in 2001, and they're on the 27th version. How many times can you bend a duck, you know, and give it another name? It still quacks. You can call it what you want. This thing quacks. It doesn't work. And, the, and and what I was hinting at, or the market is hinting at, in the dawn of chaos is. So tell me again, I I make dollars plentiful, like I massively increase the spigot, you know, I just pump dollars into my economy. And therefore, isn't the, the consequence of that would be that the price of a marginal dollar unit would fall. But the weird thing is that since you've been doing this, each marginal dollar that you produce is becoming more precious and more valuable. So you're just making this up. You're not doing it. Your heart's not in it. There's still an ideology that's holding you back, yeah? And so um, they've jettisoned a lot of ideology but I kind of reason that perhaps the Central Bank just, we're asking an impossible thing, we're asking it to be um, um, very, very irresponsible like really, really irresponsible and these guys were not made to be irresponsible put me in charge, or like like I said, put uh, Joe Rogan, someone like a, a, you know, a caricature. I'm not being tough on Joe. The Joe would be fun, but it's a it's a game of psychology, and you could really challenge it and create. If you can change behavior, you can change history. Yeah, if you can get in people's minds and make them think differently, you change history, and that's the next step.
2: Well. Let's leave on that provocative note, I know people are going to be screaming at, the, at their earbuds for more uh, or to yell at me for not digging into Bitcoin with you or at you for not explaining further, but that's, we'll, uh, that's what repeat invites are for. So, Hugh, thanks so much for hanging out. It was really, really fun and I think uh, really important, big questions that, that we are uh, discussing here today and I think we all need to be asking.
1: Thank you very much, Nathaniel. I, I fear that some of my responses are going to be re rehearing them in my head later on going, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. So apologies to everyone, but thank you very much.
2: <laughs> Reflecting on that conversation, the thing that I keep marinating on and that I really want to explore more is this alternative take on what the core problem in the current system is. And at the risk of putting words in Hugh's mouth, and I I tried to pull this out or tease this out a little bit during our conversation, I'm fascinated by this notion that the root problem may be too long spent by the American system to bring the rest of the world up and into a global American-led order, as opposed to advocating for and designing for specifically American interests domestically. In other words, while it was a good idea to create a mechanism by which the whole world could be part of this larger American-led capitalist system, the net impact and long-term fallout may be overcalibrated away from American gain and to the gain of everyone else. That's sort of what he was talking about with prioritizing savers around the world. He's not talking about savers in America and how we focus too much on savers here, he's talking about the global savings glut and what it actually means for Americans back home. There's a lot more to explore in this idea, and it's something I want to come back to, but for now, I'm really interested in what you guys think. I imagine that there will be a lot of feedback on this episode, so hit me up at NLW on Twitter, let me know what you think, tag Hugh in it, I'm sure he will respond and engage, and hopefully we'll have him back again to go deeper on some of these ideas. But for now, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. And until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.